Daniel 9, beginning with verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this reading of your holy and sacred word, Father. We do need your grace this morning. Uh, Father, should we to understand the, uh, uh, the overall thrust of this passage, Father, uh, we pray that you would indeed, uh, Father, fill our hearts with your glory afresh this morning, and that, Father, you would indeed uh, apply your word to our hearts uh, We pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. I pray that the messages on prayer over the last few weeks have been beneficial to you. They've been uh, very beneficial to me in in studying and writing them. And uh, I think it was the famous uh, 17th century English uh, theologian, John Owen, who once said that as a man prayers, or I'm sorry, as a man prays, (laughs) sorry for that, as a man prays, uh, that's how he is and nothing more. And uh, that's a sobering statement. Uh, In other words, as we think about our spiritual vitality, let us think about what we are in prayer Uh, Because that is, in essence, what we are and nothing more. And we can apply that to the church, too, can't we? I mean, uh, as we think about, um, okay, how healthy uh, is the church? Well, let's think about the prayer habits of the church. And we'll be zeroing in on how healthy the church is. As the church prays, uh, that is how it is and nothing more. Uh, By prayer, we, uh, we... 
really mean to illustrate our dependence upon God. We really can't uh, do anything apart from him, uh, especially at this moment in our worship service. Uh, if we're going to understand his word, if we're going to be changed into the likeness of Jesus, we, uh, we really are dependent utterly so on uh, God to work. But uh, be of good cheer because uh, that is something that he is indeed very pleased to do. And uh, we expect him to do that. Now, in our studies of Daniel, we have observed that uh, Daniel, I mean, as he has approached God in prayer, he has done so in a, in a posture of uh, deep repentance, hasn't he? And he has had the word of God guiding him. That's been his guide. His posture has been repentance. His guide has been scripture. And last week, we saw his motivation as the glory of God, isn't it? And I think the last part of it probably was the most challenging for us because we are deeply concerned about our own personal glory. But in terms of uh, living for the glory of God, well, that's something that I think is uh, quite foreign to uh, many of us. And uh, again, uh, don't look within to try to uh, change your heart. We look without. We look to Christ Jesus. We take what we've learned and we apply it. We go to God in a posture of repentance, repenting. Lord, you know, when I'm crossed at the workplace, I'm sometimes very prone to lashing out, right? I, you know, or maybe I get quiet and I retreat. Well, what's up there? Well, my glory has been tarnished. Uh, but in comparison to your glory, Father, uh, I must confess that uh, I'm really on about my own glory. And uh, I, have a, I, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that uh, we're probably um, um, corporately guilty of that. Um, we ask God to change it. Now, this morning, we need to move on to the final event of Daniel 9. And before we begin, I want to share something with you. You know, for our series in Daniel, for the most part, we were off to a pretty good start in the respect that, for the most part, we were taking a chapter a week, weren't we? And we were moving right along until we got to chapter 8. And did you notice at chapter 9, we seem to slow down to a, almost to a halt. We've been in chapter 9 for a long time. And I, I, I want to show my hand now. I've done that, I've done that on purpose. Uh, because oftentimes when you turn to commentaries on uh, Daniel 9, you'll find this much on verses 1 through 19. And the rest of the ink is spilled on verses 20 through uh, to the end, to verse 27. And I, I just wanted to show there is a lot of material here in verses 1 to 19. And I have a little story that I came across that, that Sinclair Ferguson shares that I think really sums this up nicely. He tells a story about a great Scottish preacher who was a, his name was uh, uh, Alexander White, and he was very popular in Scotland uh, during the uh, late 1800s into the early 1900s. Uh, he was um, uh, really just a, one of the mightiest preachers of that day. And he had an open uh, order with his bookseller. Uh, whenever they came across the commentary on Romans, he said, just when you get a commentary on Romans, just send it to me. And he had a practice that when, the, when a new commentary on Romans would show up, he would open up the book, he would turn to chapter 7, and he would look at how the author stood on a particular doctrine in Romans chapter 7. And if the author agreed, if, if he agreed with the author's position in Romans 7, then he would keep the book. If he didn't agree, then he would send the book back to the bookseller, repackage it and say, uh, sorry, this is not the book for me. And, uh, of course, uh, 
This is often exactly what's done with Daniel 9. Um, unfortunately, that's, uh, uh, the, this is the approach of way too many people today. Uh, too many people um, place the entire value of um, a message in, or a series of messages in Daniel or a commentary on Daniel simply on how uh, the 70 weeks are interpreted. Uh, so much ink has been spilt on this. And in fact, uh, so many books so emphasize the last seven verses that they practically eclipse the first 19. I didn't want to commit that error. Now, um, having brought that up, when folks decide they want to study a certain passage of Scripture, I mean, uh, many of you have done this. You've told me about it. You've, you've said, you know, I've been thinking about such and such book lately, and I want to study that. Occasionally, some of you will share that with me. And uh, what do you do? You begin your study. Uh, you start studying your, uh, your, your passages or your book. And uh, then you start looking for some commentaries. You go buy some commentaries. And, and the hopes is that when you're all said and done, you're going to have a reasonable understanding of the uh, passage or the chapters or the book that you're studying, right? Sounds pretty reasonable and logical. Well, i got to tell you, it's not that simple with... Daniel 9, 20 through 27, and some of you are smiling because you know. Uh, the commentaries are all over the place uh, in these verses. In fact, one famous commentary, commentator, J.A. Montgomery, once said that the history of the interpretation of this passage is like a dismal swamp. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, certainly a metaphor there, isn't it? Uh, pretty tough to see the bottom uh, in a dismal swamp, isn't it? Um, the ESV study Bible, which many of you carry these days, has a note on verses 24 to 27, which reads, quote, there are many suggested interpretations of the 70 weeks, but there are three main views. Then it goes on to say the passage refers to events surrounding Antiochus. We'll talk about him in a few minutes. Uh, secondly, the 77s are to be understood figuratively. Thirdly, the passage refers to events around the time of Christ. Now, of course, under these three uh, main views, there are a slew of other views. If you almost want to imagine a Christmas tree with me, you know, if you can imagine a Christmas tree, uh, up the top where the star is usually put, we'll put Daniel 9, uh, verses 24 to 27. And then under there, let's go ahead and put our three views that the ESV Study Bible has referenced. And then under each one of those views, there's a multitude of variations and you can see how it's, it's forming this, uh, this Christmas tree pattern, if you will. Um, so, um, and, and all of these views, by the way, are held very tightly. Um, when a, lot, a lot of folks, when they, when they land on one of these views, they, they have a tendency to hold on to these uh, views very tightly, so much so that someone interested in listening to my work on Daniel, they may scroll down through all of the messages and say, okay, well, I don't know if I want to listen to these messages or not. Let's, let's see what he says about the 70 weeks, and then from there we'll determine whether I want to listen to him or not. And if that's their goal, I've made it really simple. I've, I'm, not going to, I'm going to save them a bunch of work. I just entitled this sermon Daniel's 70 Weeks, and then they can just come right to it and click on it, and I just want to make it simple for them. Uh, if I'm not in their camp, then they may deem everything else I've said is not worth their time. I can't help that. Uh, uh, they may simply, with Dr. White, say, well, these messages aren't for me. Um, so, okay, with this kind of introduction, how are we to approach a passage like this? 
Uh, well, we approach it the same way we approach all the other passages. I mean, it, it, I think it's almost kind of common sense. When we come to a passage of scripture that's not very clear, we go elsewhere in the Bible where that subject is taught somewhere else where it is clear. And we use that in order to shine light on that which is less clear. Does that make sense? So we come to a passage of scripture, it's not very clear. Okay, let's look for some other places in the Bible where this subject is taught, where it's clearer. And we'll use the light of those passages to shine down on the, 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 the obscurity of the passage that we're studying. Uh, now, it's very simple. Okay, let's begin by looking at what's clear. Look with me to verse 20. While Daniel was praying, confessing his and Israel's sins, presenting his plea before the Lord, verse 21, Daniel says, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. So Daniel has not even finished praying yet. And he is met with this angelic visitation. Gabriel himself meets him. Now, we might ask a question, a good question to ask right now would be, well, what's the purpose of this visitation? Well, verse 22 and 23 answer for us. Verse 22, uh, he made me understand, speaking with me, and saying, oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. Okay, so we're not in the dark here about the purpose of Gabriel's visit. This much is clear. Gabriel has shown up to make things clear to give Daniel insight and understanding. Fair enough. Uh, Gabriel continues in verse 23. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now, last week I emphasized the fact that undoubtedly Daniel and his faithful friends had been praying for a long time for the restoration of Jerusalem. And remember, you remember last week I even made a mention. You gotta, it's, it, when we're reading Daniel, we have to really focus on the context because we so quickly lose the context. Remember, they're in exile. They've been in exile for nearly 70 years. Uh, Babylon had come into Jerusalem, had sacked the place, carried them off, killed many of their countrymen and women, uh, destroyed the temple, carried off the sacred vessels of the temple, and they've been living in Babylon in exile for all these years. And we can only imagine the faithful all of these years for nearly 70 years praying for the restoration of Jerusalem, the restoration of Jerusalem, the restoration of Jerusalem, and only to be answered with practical silence. It's hard to pray for things over and over again for long periods of time, isn't it? And this is what's been going on. And here, Daniel's praying. He's being guided by the word of God. He's been studying Jeremiah. He's discovered that the, the time of exile is to be about 70 years. He's near the end of the 70 years. He's got the promise of God. He's praying. And before he even gets done praying, Gabriel shows up. And what's he say? Daniel, you've been heard. Now I have to imagine that this was a teary-eyed moment for Daniel. Could, could you imagine the tears just falling out of your eyes? I've been heard. I've been heard. 
Yes, you've been heard. And let's not pass this up. Gabriel informs Daniel that you're greatly loved. Daniel, you're greatly loved. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you're greatly loved. It's good to know, isn't it? Especially when we think about what kind of week we may have had or may haven't have had. Maybe we've had a really good week. I hope so. Maybe we haven't had such a good week. Doesn't make any difference. You're greatly loved if you're in Christ Jesus. Isn't that wonderful news? Okay, look with me now to verse 24 because I think that verse 24 really unlocks a lot of the mystery here that we have. Gabriel continues. He says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Uh, Literally, it's 77s are decreed about your people and your holy city. And then Gabriel lists six things that will be accomplished during this stretch of time. Uh, The first, to finish the transgression. Second, to put an end to sin. Third, to atone for iniquity. Fourth, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Fifth, to seal both vision and profit. And sixth, to anoint a most holy place. Now, let's not make this any more difficult than it has to be. Uh, When we think of this list of objectives, what naturally comes to mind? Or I should say, uh, as um, believers privileged with the New Testament, who naturally comes to mind? It's like one of those questions when you're in Sunday school and you don't know the answer. What do you say? You say Jesus, (laughs) right? It works. (laughs) It works. Christ has come to put an end to sins, hasn't he? To atone for iniquity, to finish the transgression, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up prophecy, to anoint a most holy place. That's an interesting one there, isn't it? To anoint a most holy place. We might think of the old temple, you know, in the Old Testament economy. I, I make reference to the temple a lot. You know, you had the outer court, then you had the holy place inside the temple area. And then beyond that, you had the most holy place. And the most holy place was where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And no one went in there but once a year. And the only one who went in there was the high priest. And we can think about what Jesus said when, during his earthly ministry. He, uh, you know, he says, uh, pointing to the temple, he says, destroy this temple and I will do what? I'll rebuild it in three days. And two verses later, John tells us these words that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his what? His body. His body. So as... as uh, Believers privileged with the New Testament and the light that the New Testament shines upon these verses, I think it's very clear uh, that these verses are speaking of the work of Christ, ultimately so. Is that fair enough? Now, with this in mind, let's think about the ESV study Bible notes that I mentioned. The first one says that, uh, that, that the one uh, main interpretation of the three that were, that were mentioned is that these, these things speak of Antiochus. Okay, who's Antiochus? Uh, Who would name their kid Antiochus anyway? I mean, uh, who is Antiochus? Well, Antiochus was a pagan ruler who went into the temple and desecrated the temple. He actually offered a swine on the altars of the temple to the Greek god Zeus. Um, Nothing correct about that. And that really forced the Jews. That was the straw that... That the, the Jews, that was it. That broke the camel's back. That led to a revolt. The Lord gave them success in the revolt. 
and they, they rebelled against Antiochus. They took over the temple and they reconsecrated it, and the uh, worship continued. Now, um, there certainly is relevance of our passage for that event, but I can't see how that event right there uh, finds its complete fulfillment um, in verse 24. Uh, for starters, I mean, this, uh, this event did not put an end to sin. Sin still continued, did it not? Um, this event did not bring in everlasting righteousness. Only the crucifixion of Jesus can accomplish this, right? Is everybody okay? This is difficult stuff. It's tough stuff. So I think we can, dis- we can disregard the first main interpretation that we've, we've mentioned and with that, we can disregard many of the variations of that that would fall under that side of the Christmas tree. We've got a lopsided Christmas tree now, um, if you will. Let's continue on. Uh, in terms of a time frame, some questions need to be answered. And namely, the 77s, is that to be taken literally or figuratively? Well, passages like Leviticus 25.8 seem to suggest a literal interpretation. Listen to... Listen to this verse. This verse concerned the calculation of the year of Jubilee. The Jews were to, quote, count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. So what's going on is they're taking the number seven times seven weeks of years, if you were, or times seven years. Seven times seven is 49. You have 40, 49 years. Now, it is probable that when Gabriel comes to Daniel and he uses the words uh, 77s, it's, it's very probable that Daniel was thinking about Leviticus 25, I think. I think that's very probable. Now, 77s, understood this way, would be a total of 490 years. Okay, 70 times seven weeks of years. 70 times 7 years, 490 years. Now, on my shelf at home is a commentary on Daniel. There's quite a few of them, actually, on, uh, on my shelf. But there's one in particular that has a chapter devoted to this. And in that chapter, there are seven scenarios that are given concerning the 490 years. And each scenario starts at a different place and stops at a different place. And after each of these seven scenarios, the author offers a critique. So this goes on. It's actually very tedious to follow. Uh, And then after all of that is done, he brings up an eighth scenario, which he embraces. And if I remember correctly, he does offer a variation of it, which would be a ninth um, variation in the chapter. Yeah, I I just don't know that that is on track. Um, You know, did... um, did the, the count, does the count start with Jeremiah's prophecy? Does, it count with, does the count start with Babylonian conquest? Does it count with Cyrus's decree? Uh, and a question that many commentators don't even bring up, does the count start in heaven or does it start on earth? Start on earth? If we're to take this literally, does it start in heaven? I mean, many, many commentators don't even take that into consideration. When the word goes out, I mean, it's... Is it going out from God's throne? Is there a duration of time that takes place before it finds expression on earth? I would think so. Uh, We have many passages that would suggest that. 
Uh, for instance, Cyrus's decree, before Cyrus issues his decree, Ezra tells us that the Lord began to stir his heart uh, to issue that decree. Here we see the, word, the, the intentions of God have already gone forth before this takes fruition. And uh, uh, I think it's incredibly difficult to choose between all of these options, quite frankly. Um, there's a little bit more to it here. Um, Let's, let, let's set aside the literal interpretation of the 77s for a moment. Let's think about the figurative interpretation of them. Um, you, uh, if you remember uh, Peter's words in, in Matthew 18, uh, Peter asks Jesus this question. He says, uh, uh, if my brother sins against me and he, he repents, how many times am I to forgive him? As many as seven times. And what's Jesus say in response? He says, no, 70 times 7. Some translations will just say 77 times, but it can also be trans. Many translations say 70 times 7. Okay? 70 times 7. Um, you almost got to wonder, you know, where the Lord gets this 70 times 7 from. What's in his mind? Is it this passage here in Daniel? And is this to be taken literally? Okay, Peter, uh, if it's 77 times, then you need to carry a little notebook with you. And... Um, you know, when you get to 77, you just, uh, that's too bad. I mean, uh, uh, you know, you got one more shot and, uh, you know, number 78 will be too many. Or, uh, or if we take it to be 70 times 7, then we're, we got to need a bigger notebook because uh, we're keeping track of a much larger number. That's absurd, isn't it? Um, uh, obviously, Jesus is, is, is giving a, a figurative number here. He goes, no, you're to keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And, and I think the overall, whether we take it to be 77 times or 490 times, it's to be, a, it's to be complete. We're to, we're to completely offer forgiveness to people should they come and repent. The offer of repentance is to be, is to be there should they come and, and repent. Does that make sense? And this has led a lot of people to take a figurative view here. So there's not necessarily a, a literal um, 490 days. Now, I don't want to overload you. I could very easily do that because it's, uh, there's many other things here. But I want, to point, I want to point something else out to you. If you look to, with me to verse 25, in the ESV it reads, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Does anybody have an NIV open right now? Or a New King James? Or a King James? King James. Well, King James, it read differently, didn't it? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, it did. Um, it read more like, uh, so uh, this is the New American Standard. It read, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be or there will be seven sevens, or seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it will be built again with uh, plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Now, yours was slightly different than that, but it was closer the second time, wasn't it? There's an alternate here. And some editions of the ESV, namely the ESV Study Bible, has a note. It has the little, the little footnote, and you go to the bottom of the page, and it'll point this out. So uh, here we have... Uh, we have another variable is what I'm trying to say. Now, I could continue down this list. I don't, I don't really want to because I, after a little while, you just can't take any more of it. 
What I'm trying to say here is it is very difficult to make the choices as you go along. You're going to have to, you're, you're going to, have to make many choices as you go along in order to begin to interpret all of these details. And I think it is incredibly different, difficult to do that. How can we be dogmatic about any interpretation that we would get in terms of these details? I, to me, I, I think it's, it's actually incredibly difficult. Um, now, that having been said, uh, you've, probably heard all, you've probably all heard this phrase, let's keep the plain things the main things. Because this is what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we can't find a, uh, a word from God here. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is I don't think we know the details I think the commentaries are very clear. When you go to the commentaries written by men and women who are extraordinary at interpreting scripture, and they all disagree with each other on this particular passage, well, you know, uh, I don't think we got the details is what I'm trying to say here. And in trying to get the details, oftentimes we miss, I think, what Gabriel was trying to give to Daniel. What is plain here? What is very plain here? We have a powerful message here that is plain. We just have to look at the context for it. Daniel's heart is set on the 70 weeks, right? That's how Daniel 9 starts. Daniel has been studying Jeremiah. He's been in exile for a long time. His heart is burning for the restoration of Jerusalem. He knows it's coming near an end. He is burning for the 70 weeks. That's what he is praying about. But God wants Daniel to know that this event is not going to ultimately bring in the final consummation of the kingdom. Because I think Daniel could have had that impression. That once we're restored, Jesus, or uh, uh, God, the Messiah, if you will, he's going to bring in the restoration of the kingdom. The kingdom of God will be restored. I think he could have come to that, could have easily come to that conclusion. But God is saying, no, 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 Daniel. No. There's, there's more. And actually, it's going to be difficult. When we get to chapter 10, we're going to see that. It's going to be difficult. But he wants Daniel to know it's coming. I don't know if we're to take a literal view of the 77s, if we're to take a figurative view of the 77s. I don't know the answer to that. There's good arguments on both sides. What I do know, and that's what I'm going to preach this morning, is that God has set a time, and it's known to him, and it's set in stone. And there's a powerful message here, because life is hard. You know, a couple of us are headed to the funeral home afterwards, right? At least one of us is headed to a funeral home today. And there's others that will be there tomorrow, perhaps. It's hard. It's easy to become uh, discouraged. Life is so full of difficulties. We think of our prayer list. Think of our prayer meetings on Wednesday nights. Just think of the things that we go through. It's full of heartache. It's full of disappointment. We can often find ourselves in the midst of all of it, wondering if God's asleep or not. And that's when we can. That's when we can come to this passage. That's, you know, that's uh, riddled with so many difficulties. And we can find comfort in it. 
I don't know the details here, and I'm very convinced no one else does either from reading all of this stuff. I don't know the details. What I do know is there's a time limit that's set. And these things speak of Christ. They obviously speak of Christ. They speak of the work of what he's come to do. I don't think it's all over with at the crucifixion and resurrection, by the way. I think that these, I think that these events, and this is just what I think. I'm just going to give you my opinion here. This is just my opinion here. But I think that, I think that these six items in verse 24 that we looked at that are to be accomplished... I think they span all the way to Revelation 21, which we read at the opening of our service this morning. In other words, I think this spans through the entire uh, period of time until Jesus will bring in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what I think. And I've made a promise to all of you when I'm giving you my opinion, I'll make sure that you understand. I'm just giving you an opinion here. Um, That's my opinion of this passage. I think it speaks of the whole thing. But that's my opinion. Um, But what we can be sure of here is God has set a time limit. And when you're suffering, it's really helpful to know that the suffering won't go on forever, isn't it? In fact, that makes all the difference in the world. And if you're in Christ Jesus this morning, your suffering won't go on forever. That means everything when you're suffering. I want to leave you with one last final application. Um, you, we, you know, we often, you know, my notes here say we often want things to happen right away. Can I amend that? I suppose I can, right? It'd be all right. I'm going to amend it to say, well, we always want things to happen right away. Am I okay with saying that? We always want it to happen right away. Here we see God's got a different time frame, doesn't he? Now there's going to be 77s. You know, I don't know if that's 490 years. I don't know if it's figurative. Um, I don't know, but I could say that to myself. There's 77s, and I don't know how long this is going to be, but I know God does. And the eye of faith says it won't be forever. And that's a lot of comfort. I don't know how long it's going to take to... Uh, to sanctify Rick Anderson, I, I don't know. Um, I know I'm going to have to go through the doorway of death in order to be completely sanctified and to be at least progressively so. And uh, uh, I'll have to be glorified. But I, I say this because I really wish I was further along than I am. And uh, maybe some of you have similar wishes that you wish you were just a little further along than you are. You know, there's no point in trying to hide that. <laughs> if you ever notice that don't work. We are what we are at the moment, aren't we? Don't you ever wish it was just going a little faster? Some of the old besetting sins that you keep committing, you wish you could get behind you, they just keep, they just keep tormenting you. And there's been different times where I wish the church was farther along than it is, you know? And, uh, well, it is what it is. And uh, we can say 77s, can't we? These things happen in God's time. But we can rejoice regardless of whatever week or kind of week you've had or how many ways you've blown it this week. God will accomplish the complete salvation of everyone in Jesus. And if you're in Christ this morning, God has taken you to perfection. Did you hear that? If you're in Christ this morning, God is taking you to perfection. That's where you're going. If you're not in Christ this morning, what's stopping you?
Why would you want to stay apart from him? This is worth shouting from the hilltops, isn't it? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and we praise you, Father, for the glorious word that we have here. We confess, Father, I don't know many of the details of this passage, Father, but I think that this is the the general thrust. I think this is what Daniel understood. The end is not going to be with the 70 weeks or the 70, uh, the 70 years of exile, but there's much more to come and it will involve much hardship and much suffering. And uh, uh, Father, uh, we recognize, Lord, that you are indeed, you are fulfilling your promises and we need not worry, even though it seems to take such a long time. Uh, Father, we can, we can look to this announcement of Gabriel's. We can see Gabriel um, so swiftly coming to Daniel before he's even finished with his prayer and announcing that 77s are decreed. And uh, Father, I think, um, I think we have indeed a comforting word here in times of, seer, uh, of, of serious trial and uh, hardship that we can be comforted, Father, and we thank you for that. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.